Well, I don't know about you, but I have uh, I've been a part of my, I've had my share of public fights. You know, I'm not proud to say it, but arguments that came out with either my son on his Little League football team or just, you know, just different reasons. I've, I've, I have to admit that there have been times where I've had public fights. They never go well. As a matter of fact, I'm O for however many times I've ever had a pu- public argument in front of other people. If you're going to argue with somebody, the best news, the best idea is to go play someplace private and have it. Don't have it publicly. It doesn't go well. And so it is for the disciples this morning as we look at our gospel passage. I'm going to focus on the gospel, but I think you'll hear hints of the other passages coming into play as the sermon progresses. You need to know that right before this passage, the, the, the inner circle, James, Peter, and John, have been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've gone up to the top of the mountain. They've seen Jesus manifest, and they have come back down. And so now Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John, are all coming down the mountain. And what do they find but the other disciples? I won't call them the B team, but, but the other disciples are in the midst of an argument with the crowd we find out later this man, this, this man who has a, fa- a son who's, who's greatly troubled, and, and the scribes, that is the law experts, the, the, those who've come to refute the disciples. And they're in the midst of this argument going on. And, and so Jesus comes down and immediately he, he is, you know, he's right at the moment. Just, what is this argument about? What are you arguing with these guys about? What is going on? I think it's interesting because we, we break out this passage from the, the transfiguration passage, but you know, we always talk about coming down from the mountain, but, but this is the reality of it, right? You come down from that, that intimate moment with the Lord where, where, where God says, this is my son whom I will please, listen to him. He comes down the mountain and then immediately he sees the disciples are, are just making a terrible mess. And here they are in the midst of, of having this argument what are you arguing with these guys about? And we don't really get a full answer, but we know the nature of it because the, the father of the, of the, of the, man, the young man who's, who's demon-possessed speaks up. But, but perhaps it's about the nature of healing itself. You know, what is the nature of healing? A theological debate. Uh, maybe it's the proper techniques to heal. How do you heal somebody? Um, and by the way, I'm saying H-E-A-L. Sometimes when, I'm, when I say heal, it sounds like hill. And so you can't distinguish the two. So heal, I'm talking about healing here today, not hills. Proper technique, perhaps it's the legitimacy of the, the ministry of the disciples. Perhaps, you know, perhaps that's hitting ground zero. It's like, who are you guys? You call yourselves disciples of Jesus and yet you can't cast this demon out? Perhaps it's, the, it's threatening to them that these, these scribes and the, perhaps the crowd as well are suggesting that, that these these disciples just really aren't, you know, up to the task. They're, they're failure disciples. We don't get all the details. But if you think about it, I think one of the fears we have as Christians is that as we let people know that we follow Christ, that we'll go out and ask, be asked to do something and that we will flop. We'll fall completely on our faces and we'll embarrass ourselves as well as Jesus. And basically the 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 words we fear in our hearts and our minds are, you can't deliver. You say your God is this powerful God who heals and restores, and, and yet you can't deliver. 
fill in the blank. I think that's one of those fears that we all have. Perhaps that keeps us silent, keeps us paralyzed in silence. Now, I want to make sure you understand that, that in this particular account, we're talking about a, a person who is disabled because of a demonic possession. But back in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, remember there was a man who was deaf and mute, and Jesus heals him. And there's no indication that there was any sort of demonic spirit at work. It was simply this man was deaf and mute, and Jesus healed him. In this particular case, there's a demonic possession that is causing the manifestation of, of muteness in the, in the sun. And also what would, we would describe probably as epileptic seizures where he's flopping around and he's foaming at the mouth and all sorts of things going on. I want to make sure you know, and I, 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 probably you do, but just to remind you, not every disease or illness has a demonic root or cause. There are some demonic activities. Sometimes it does manifest in physical limitations, but many times it's not. And Jesus distinguishes the two in the, in the Gospels. And, and so anyone who says, well, the, the Bible's, you know, irreverent because it doesn't acknowledge scientific proof that we realize that there's a lot of times these are medical conditions. No, the Bible does. And so sometimes Jesus heals the physical condition and sometimes he simply casts out the demonic force. Both are present in the scriptures and the, and the disciples. I, I, I want you to make sure you're clear on that because that's, it's really important to understand when I think about this passage, I, I, I know I keep plugging the show, The Chosen. If you haven't watched it, it you should. It's, 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 it is not written word for word from the Gospels, but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an internet series that goes through the life of Jesus. And they take a little bit of license, but they also have some really poignant pieces. And particularly as I'm thinking about this passage, I think about a scene where the, they depict uh, Nicodemus, who, you know, comes to Jesus at night and eventually becomes a disciple. Nicodemus and a, and a band of other Pharisee types from Jerusalem, and they go and try to cast out a demon from Mary Magdalene. And it is a complete failure, right? It, it reminds me of that passage in Acts where the, the people try to cast out a demon and they say, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And then the guy just gets this, you know, what beat. It's, 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 it's a, one of those interesting places where, you know, you don't understand what you're dealing with here. And, and perhaps that's kind of going on here a little bit, but, but I think about that. But there are lots of questions that are raised, not only for the disciples, but for us as disciples, what if we're not successful? What is the nature of faith anyway? Do some people have faith and some people don't have faith? And how does prayer and healing work? I prayed for this thing and it didn't get answered. Lots of questions that get raised in this passage. And I think it's one of those gospel passages that's so helpful and yet it's also complex. Now this is not going to be a, a, a teaching on the full understanding of prayer. We have some wonderful prayer intercessors and we have some prayer counselors and people that have trained on prayer. And, and so if you have more questions about details, things about prayer, happy to talk about them. But I, I do want to touch on that because it's so central to what Jesus is saying. But at the very heart of this passage, I believe, is the issue of faith. And the reason I believe that is because that's what Jesus' words indicate. And for our, our fourth graders who are here, who are learning to be in big church and learning to sort of get used to being in a, in a different environment where you're not having a, a children's church and a snack and an object lesson, one of the things I will tell you about learning the Bible is that when you read the Gospels, always look, always look at the words of Jesus. It's easy to get, to get distracted with the action going around. This father who seems to unbelieve, but yet he believes. 
The disciples seem to get rebuked about being faithless and that they don't know how to pray and all sorts of things going, floating around. But look at the words of Jesus. Matter of fact, if you've got uh, one of the scripture sheets that has the passage written out, I would suggest that you go through first for adults and kids and underline all the words of Jesus. Because that they really are the most important words, of course, right? And what do the words of Jesus indicate? That this is really about faith or the absence of faith. When James talks about, you show me your faith, I'll, you know, my works, and I'll show you, you know, faith versus works, it's, it's really talking about faith that's demonstrated in action. You see, the word faith and the word believe and the word trust in the Greek are really all the same idea. We don't just sort of have faith in our minds and don't demonstrate it in our actions. It's faith, what we say we believe, should be demonstrated in our actions, in our trust. The best example I can give to you, because I have a son-in-law who's intending to pursue uh, becoming a pilot, is one thing for me to say, Jacob, I have faith that you can become a pilot. I believe that God is causing, calling you to fly an airplane. It is an entirely different thing for when he gets his pilot license for me to sit down in the seat next to him and say, okay, take me up in the air thousands of feet above the surface of the earth. Faith, belief, is trust. It's, it's putting your life in such a place that you're demonstrating with your work or your action that you truly do believe these things. Very, very different thing that Jesus is wanting to pull out of this passage for us today to show us and to cause to come forth in the disciples we should see our, ourselves not in the, the, the big three, Peter, James, and John, which we always want to cast ourselves, but as the, the minor disciples, the B team, the other disciples that are there in the midst of this argument. We should see ourselves there and understand what it is the Lord wants to say into this situation. What do you do when you pray and you don't see an answer to your prayer or you don't get the answer that you want or you pray about a situation and your desired outcome doesn't happen. We've all faced that, especially in this season. I think one of, one of the things about this season in our lives is that this, this year and a half we've been living through, going on two years, is that we, things are not working the way they're supposed to work for us in lots of different ways. And so we're challenged to say, Lord, what do we do in the midst of this? We've prayed. We've prayed about situations. We've prayed for people. And, and there are times where the answer that we've asked for has not come forward. Well, first of all, I want you to see the faithless crowd. Now, the first question we have to answer is, who is Jesus saying when he says, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Could there be any more horrible thing than for Jesus to say to us, you faithless generation, you, you are completely void of any faith. You have no trust whatsoever in me. Jesus sees in them the skeptics mocking. Prove it. It's like, the, it's like the men who were at the cross who were saying, you say you, you, know, you can tear down the temple and raise it up in three days. Save yourself. You know, and they're, they're waiting. For their, but they're, they're not speaking out of faith. They're, they're speaking out of mockery and out of skepticism. Prove it to me. Because I have no faith at all that you are who you say you are. Or that you can do what you say you can do. Jesus is not saying you faithless generation to the disciples. He's saying it to the crowd. He's saying it to the skeptics that are around. Jesus 
rebukes his disciples throughout the gospels, but he does it in private. He does it particularly to them. They have demonstrated faith. They're, they're following him all over the place. But this crowd, Jesus recognizes many of them are faithless. They're skeptics. They're mocking. They're arguing with the disciples and they're asking to prove it. How long will I be with you? How long must I bear with you? Bring him to me, Jesus says. Bring him to me. This is such a key, you guys, for our, our lives. Our, we oftentimes take, if we have the boldness to, to step out in ministry leadership, oftentimes we think somehow it's upon us. One of the big pitfalls of early ordination is that you go, okay, I'm a priest now. Now I got to do all the Jesus stuff, you know, and you kind of muster up enough energy or whatever to sort of, you know, fake it till you make it kind of a thing is pretty much what happens. And we take it upon ourselves. But what Jesus says is bring it, bring him to me. If Jesus doesn't heal somebody that I pray for, that's Jesus's business. That's not me. I'm called forth to be faithful to pray. But what the Lord does And I'm called to pray with faith, to believe that Christ can heal. But the outcome is not mine to bear. But we oftentimes take it on. Jesus says, bring him to me. Bring him to me so that I can work with him. And and Jesus then does something amazing. He goes from interacting with the crowd and even the disciples to interacting with the man and the son We have to entrust these situations, these people that we love, these things that we want to see change. We have to entrust them to Jesus. Jesus takes interest in the man and his son. Now, notice that the very first thing that happens after Jesus comes and identifies the situation with the man and his son and what the cause of this argument, immediately things go from bad to worse. They do. They don't get better just because Jesus shows up. It, they get worse, in fact. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the son begins to, to convolt again and, and, and contort, and, and there's, there's more violence in the situation, and it, it can even look worse. And we should take some, some peace in that because Jesus is working in the midst of the situation, but it doesn't always look like it at first. And that, too, we have to entrust to Jesus. But he looks to the person And he turns to the father and he says, how long has this been going on? How long has this been happening in this son's life? I know, I'm thinking about that old rock and roll song too. You know, how long has this been going on? But it's not the, it's not the, that's not where they got the words for that song from. Jesus is saying, how long has this been, how long have you been tortured by this? He cares, he takes interest. Can I just say that sometimes we, we, we miss the, the, the forest, we miss the trees, we miss the individual people. There are hurting people who, who, who don't come to hear our theological reflections on difficult issues or to watch us debate important things. That's where the church oftentimes misses people who are just crying out, can you have some compassion on me? Can you do anything about my situation? Jesus cares for the individual person. He ministers to them. He cares about each and every one. 
And oftentimes as churches, we, we care about numbers and buildings and, and all these things and great movements of God and what God's going to do all over the world. And, and we quote all these things, but, but do we care about the person in front of us that is hurting and in pain? Because Jesus does. The man represents a second category of person in the story. There's the faithless crowd. There's also faith encouraged in this father. The father is so bold as to say to Jesus, if you can help, not knowing whether or not Jesus is capable. I don't know about you, but I've been in that place. I've been in that place of of wanting to believe and yet not certain that God could do it. It's the, it's the skeptic's prayer. Lord, if you're there and I'm not sure you're there, will you make yourself known to me? I think, I think Jesus loves that prayer. I don't think that's a faithless prayer. I think that's actually a step of faith that the Lord is very pleased with. Because in that moment, you're actually speaking to the God of the universe and you're inviting him to make himself known in your life. Lord, if you're there, and I'm not certain you are, but if you are, Make yourself known to me. And the Lord answers that prayer over and over again in the lives and hearts of many people. And that's exactly what's what's going on here. The father asked that Jesus would have compassion, that he would be with passion for him and his son, that he would help them if he can. And Jesus says emphatically, if you can, (laughs) all things are possible for those who believe. God's ability to heal is never in question, but what he is calling forth in the lives of you and I is trust in him, to put ourselves in his trust, to believe and have faith that God can do these things. Not a skeptic waiting to be proven right or wrong, but one who's willing to test Jesus and to try him and to find him faithful in the midst of a terrible situation. Not great faith necessarily, but simply the beginnings of trust. Stepping forward to say, if you can, Lord help me. And that's exactly what the man does. And in response, Jesus ministers to him. Jesus calls us to trust in him. If the Lord was like a magic genie who simply answered every wish and whim, he wouldn't be the God of the universe. And what he's calling forth is for us to put our trust in him, to to believe that he is able to do those things which we can see and those things which we cannot see. One of my favorite prayers to pray over people, particularly near death and in the hospital, is Philippians 1.6. And God who began a good work in you we'll see it to completion in our Lord Jesus Christ. To speak that prayer by faith over somebody who is dying, that God who began a good work will see it to completion. That is the prayer of faith that Paul prays in Philippians 1 and that we're called to pray. And that is what he's calling forth in this man. You see, I believe that Jesus sees that there's something more necessary in this man's life than even to have his son healed. And that may seem strange to you. Here's my son, epileptic seizures, demonic possession. He's hurting himself. He is a danger to himself and others. And he can't speak. He can't tell me what's wrong. And there is nothing worse as a parent than to have a child that cannot communicate what's wrong with him. 
And yet Jesus recognizes that the deepest need of this man's life is to, is to believe that Jesus is capable of taking care of the situation. And how many Christians, and baby Christians particularly, have cried out as this man does, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I, I'm, I'm having, I've got some, some sense of faith in you, but there's also doubt. And I think that's okay for us to acknowledge that there are, we can still have doubts and be, be a believer in Christ Jesus, to be one who is trusting in Christ. We still can go, you know what, I don't, Lord, I really don't know what you're doing here. When I read some of the Old Testament passages, I go, you know, Lord, I don't really know what you were doing there, but I trust you. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't really know what you're doing with this situation in our culture and our society, but I believe, help my unbelief. And in that moment, Jesus is, is, in, is calling forth greater faith in this, in this man for his son. Jesus sees the, need, the deeper need. Remind, remember that I said last week, it's interesting because we see a lot of physical healings in the scriptures, but remember that, that oftentimes the people who are physically healed are actually the people who are blind and lame and deaf and, and that spiritually speaking, right? And so oftentimes it's the people who are infirmed physically who actually have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and a greater trust in him. It's important to remember that. And oftentimes there are, there are deeper things that, 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 that Jesus needs to deal with us before he physically heals us, if in fact he will heal us in this world. Jesus works towards the demonic. And I think this is important too. I don't want to skim on this. The fact that there is, there's a demonic presence here that Jesus speaks directly to. At the end of our service, we borrow from the Kenyan liturgy all of our problems, we send to the cross of Christ. All of our difficulties, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. Super great prayer to pray in the midst of difficult situations in your life, right? To, you know, and particularly when you're praying over somebody, if you feel as if there's some sort of demonic oppression or something that's going on that is, that is supernatural, that's not just a physical ailment, you pray that that spirit would go to the cross of Jesus, send it to the cross for him to deal with as he would. Because it is at the cross of Jesus Christ that he dealt with every infirmity, every sin, every brokenness, every evil in our world. And so ultimately, all of it needs to go to Christ. And we just send those demonic, those spiritual spirits of darkness, we send them in advance for Jesus to deal with them as he would. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lastly, there's the, the postscript of the story. And of course, Jesus does heal. He, he, he drains the, the demons to come out of this young man. Remember again, it gets worse before it gets better. When he calls them out, they, they actually contort the boy and he's, he's harmed even further before he finally comes out. The postscript identifies a third category. And the third category is, the, is these, the B, I'll call them the B-team disciples. All right, I'll pay the price later, but I'll call them that. You'll remember that maybe. 
not James, Peter, and John, the others, they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, why couldn't we cast him out? You, you, just, you dealt with this demon so easily. Why couldn't we do that? And Jesus responds, this type comes out only by prayer. And you're like, do the disciples know how to pray? What, what, what's going on here? What, you know, and then you say, do I know how to pray correctly? What, I mean, is there something that I'm not doing wrong? Would I have the same effect if I, if I did? And, and I don't believe that Jesus is, again, back to technique here. I think what Jesus is saying is, remember that you have to be in constant communication with me, with the Father, with the Spirit. Prayer is not you just walking in and giving your to-do list to God. Prayer is the conversation between you and God as to what the Lord wants to do in this situation. There's a wonderful saint. I was privileged to do her funeral. Her name was Annabelle Sandifer. And, and she used to say, I will pray about that. And then when the Lord tells me, I will pray for that. That's the prayer Jesus is talking about. A prayer that has a, a, a two-way conversation with the Lord and seeks to know how the Lord is calling you to pray for something. The first thing we do when we do intercessory prayer on here is we say, come Holy Spirit. We submit to you, Spirit. And then we, we listen prayerfully about what the Lord would have us pray and, and how he would have us pray in the life of someone else. That's what Jesus is saying, that, that prayer is necessary. Not a formula, but fellowship, communication, Asking the Lord about it and for it and, and allowing him to respond. They didn't get the answer that they were looking for. The disciples didn't. They were ridiculed by the crowd. And yet Jesus sees in that moment the opportunity for their faith to be deepened. As though, even though they didn't see the answer they wanted, can they draw from that greater trust in the Lord and be like that man and his son. Lord, I don't, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, real quickly, a couple of applications that I want to just put an exclamation point on for you. Don't lose faith in Jesus. Don't be that faithless generation. Let's not be those people for whom We've given up. And if anything, we're just asking Jesus to prove himself in some faithless manner. Secondly, bring people to Jesus. Bring situations to Jesus. Maybe you can't physically bring them to Jesus, but bring them to him in your mind. Mentally bring that person or that situation to the Lord. And, say, and literally say, Lord, what do you want me to pray? How do you want me to respond to the situation? Bring people to Jesus entrust them to him one of the most difficult things I ever to do was to was to pray over my three-week-old daughter and say Lord this is your child I don't know what's wrong with her the doctors don't know what's wrong with her I entrust her to you and that is exactly the thing the Lord calls us to do not only in our children's lives and some of us have had that experience but in everything we do believing that God can do something about it Believing that God can act in that situation. God can always heal. John Wimbers, the famous leader of the Vineyard Movement, said, when we didn't pray for people, no one got healed. When we started praying for people, some got healed. Some is better than none. 
We don't pray demanding God will heal, but we pray in expectation that he can. And third, realize that prayer is two ways. It's two-way communication. C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying in that movie Shadowlands, I don't, I've never actually been able to find this, but it's such a great line. This guy is saying, well, you know, you prayed and your God didn't heal your wife. Remember, C.S. Lewis loses his wife. And, and, and in the movie, Anthony Hopkins playing C.S. Lewis says, I don't pray that I would change God. I pray that God would change me. If your prayer is only that you would change God, then God is calling you to grow in your faith, to deepen in your faith, and allow God to change you in the midst of your circumstances. Though things seem worse than better, trust in the Lord. Though we don't receive the answer we want, trust in the Lord. Though the crowd mocks us and ridicules us and tries to pick fights with us, trust in the Lord. Above all, trust in the resurrection. I left out an important little piece of the story. The the boy is healed, the demon is cast out, but the crowd thought that he was dead. Did you notice that? Right before this passage, the disciples are trying to understand what Jesus means by rising from the dead. Right after this passage, Jesus again will talk about rising from the dead, and the disciples don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus is demonstrating it in this account. The boy looked like he was dead until Jesus raised him up. I don't think that's by incident, by coincidence, until Jesus raised him up. Friends, some of the people that we love, that we pray for, will not be healed in this world. But one day, those who look dead, Jesus will raise up, amen? And when he does, he will not simply raise them up to live in this broken, confusing world, but he will raise them up to eternal life. And then he will make all things new. Trust in the Lord. Amen.